Turn with me, if you will, to the Gospel according to Mark. We're in the sixth chapter and shall be reading verses 7 to 13. Mark 6, verses 7 to 13. It reads, And he, that's Jesus, called unto him the twelve, and began to send them forth by two and two, and gave them power over unclean spirits, and commanded them that they should take nothing for their journey, save a staff only, no scrip, no bread, no money in their purse, but be shod with sandals, and not put on two coats. And he said unto them, in what place soever you enter into a house, there abide till you depart from that place. And whosoever shall not receive you nor hear you, when you depart thence, shake off the dust under your feet for a testimony against them. Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. And they went out and preached that men should repent. And they cast out many devils and anointed with oil many that were sick and healed them. Amen. So last week we witnessed Jesus and the disciples going back to Jesus' hometown. The people were amazed by the accounts they'd heard of both the words and the works of their fellow citizen, Jesus. But they concluded that if he looked like a normal man, he must be one. Therefore, for the most part, they rejected him. It was because of this lack of faith that Jesus didn't perform many miracles or healings there. Jesus now then commissions the disciples to go out and be a witness for him. Well today I'd like to look at some of the details of this commission. From the outset though, I need to make this point. We shouldn't think that all the details are to be copied by those who today wish to carry out the same gospel message to the world. As with all practices in scripture, it's our duty to distinguish between principles which apply to us and those which don't necessarily. By way of example, I'd like to look at the instruction to go out in pairs, in twos. There are pretty obvious advantages to this. Solitary evangelists won't have the same encouragement from a partner. They won't have a check on the quality of the doctrine that they preach and the preaching won't carry the same authority you know it's a principle found throughout scripture that two witnesses to a claim uh, carry more weight than one you may remember when we looked through revelation it used the picture of two witnesses to describe the entire authoritative witness of the church throughout the ages we might say the two-by-two two method has been hijacked by the cults. In particular, the Mormon Church and the Watchtower organization who call themselves Jehovah's Witnesses 
have more than anyone else taken this principle so strictly that they have, if you like, ruined it for genuine evangelism. If members of the public now see pairs of people talking about Jesus in the street or at their front door, they assume they must belong to one of these groups. Now, it doesn't mean we shouldn't use that method, of course. But as with many other ways, the Lord's people can be wrongly identified with these unchristian religious groups. Now, I use this as an example of a practice that has merit even for evangelists today. I've, uh, I've done outreach with uh, other people and by myself, and I can tell you which one I prefer. It is much, much harder when you're on your own. So the, the going out with more than one person it's, um, has its merit. But there are other aspects of this commission of Jesus that are not to be copied, such as trying to cast out demons or travelling around completely unprepared. So... Well, let's look at these instructions then. The first point I want to make today is that the disciples were sent. The disciples were sent. They went because they were sent. And all true evangelists since then have likewise been sent by God. You might remember a scripture I quoted last week which asked us how people could hear the gospel without a preacher. And it went on to ask how anyone can preach unless they've been sent. The ways in which men enter the preaching ministries are are numerous. But what they all have in common is the work begins with a direct commission from God. Any man in this world can go out and start preaching. And throughout history they have. But... If they haven't been sent by God, they are not true gospel preachers. The one who has been genuinely called to this ministry by God is, he's converted to Christ. He attaches himself to a local church. He's filled with a burden and an ability to preach. He obeys that call and his preaching is endorsed by the Lord's people. There's no place in scripture and no place today for lone wolf evangelists. Have a look at um, Luke uh, chapter 10 and verse 2. Luke 10 and verse 2 says this. Therefore said he unto them, the harvest truly is great, but the labourers are few. Pray ye therefore, the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth labourers into his harvest. So pray, dear brothers and sisters, the Lord would indeed send people to harvest his elect. And always remember, it's not just those with titles who have this responsibility. God does raise up men who he gives uncommon gifts to, but he expects all his people to be ambassadors for Jesus in this world here's my second point the disciples were not only sent 
they were also equipped. They were equipped for the task. In this very unique context, the disciples were given not just a gospel message, but power to perform miracles. In the wisdom of God, this transitional period lasting several decades saw unusual expressions of God's power through instant healings and other miracles on a scale that had never been seen in history and has never been seen since. These were not meant to last and they didn't. The actions and the words of the modern Signs and Wonders movement bears no resemblance to New Testament practices. God doesn't merely call people to ministry, but equips them too. He doesn't raise someone up as a preacher of righteousness only to then deprive them of the knowledge and the spirit needed to fulfil a role. To add weight to the gospel message in these very early days of the church, the Lord kindly shared even some of his own miraculous abilities with his followers. But servants of God today also have access to his storehouse of power. We may not receive power to perform miracles, but then again, we shouldn't want to. We happily go along with whatever methods God chooses, but he equips us. 2 Timothy and chapter 4 says in verse 17, not with, Notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, that by me the preaching might be fully known, and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. God's servants today go out with the same authority as their forefathers in the faith. When we determine to go and tell others about Jesus, he goes with us. And if you will humble yourself and go to God asking for strength, he will give it. And it's through this strength of God that his servants have accomplished great things. So if you're exceptionally shy, he can loose your tongue. If you're afraid of a hostile reaction, he can give you Boldness. And if you think you're not clever enough, he can show you the gospel saves not through the cleverness of words, but by the power of God's Spirit through you. I like this hymn, it goes, it's a well known one, it goes like this We rest on thee, our shield and our defender. We go not forth alone against a foe, strong in thy strength, safe in thy keeping, tender. We rest on thee, and in thy name we go. We've considered the disciples being sent and equipped for the task, and my third point is the disciples were fully reliant on God. Now I did say there were aspects to this particular commission that are not to be copied forever. As we read this passage, you may have been struck, I was, by a sense of urgency in Jesus' instructions. It's like he was saying, just go as you are. Urgency there. 
They were not to take food with them. They were not to take money in order to buy food along the way. They were not to take a bag with necessary bits in. And he even restricted the amount of clothing they wore. So they couldn't even sleep outdoors if they had to. Let's be clear. There was never any risk the disciples would starve or die of exposure. There'd be people on their travels who'd take them in, feed them, give them a bed for the night. But this would be a good lesson for them about reliance on God, certainly. You'll notice, though, that Jesus would later overturn those instructions and send the disciples out properly prepared. And in doing this, he laid down for future generations the meaning of reliance on God. He now expects us to use normal means for carrying out his work. But it is always carried out with a complete reliance on God in prayer. Some today, professing Christians, with obviously a poor understanding of these scriptures, they tell us that they're living by faith. It's likely that it's these very verses they misuse in order to justify their frankly irresponsible attitude. They might claim they don't need to have a job because God will pay their bills. They might travel about evangelising, insisting God will feed them. How noble. But I'd say this approach in no way displays a great faith. I know it impresses some. I know it does. But it's just reckless. The greatest irony of these men of faith is they so rely on God to supply their needs without any effort on their part that they go round telling everyone they're living by faith. And there are many people who have responded sympathetically to these remarks by contributing to the living of those people. It's a bizarre scenario, but it just shows how little faith these men really have. God expects us to use the means he's provided in this world. So if you want to eat, he expects you to earn money. If you want to get from A to B, he expects you to travel. If you want to keep your family safe, you must be prepared to defend them from those who wish to harm them. But again, every step you take, every word that comes out of your mouth must be covered with prayer. Philippians 4, verse 6, exhorts us, Be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. The disciples were sent by God. They were equipped by God. They relied on God. And my fourth point is, they preached repentance. Repentance. At the heart of all their preaching was repentance. They told people to stop sinning. They told them to seek God instead. They told them to confess their sinfulness. They told them to trust in the merits of the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ. 
their message then was partly negative. People would need to become aware they were in terrible danger before the rescue was presented to them. After all, what use is there in telling a drowning man of a way out of a swollen river if they don't believe they're drowning? What point is there in offering food to a man who isn't at all hungry? Likewise, those who think themselves righteous won't see their need for a saviour. The mention of sin must have its place in gospel preaching and the natural man doesn't like it. If a man preaches the gospel faithfully, he will be met with opposition. And fearful Christians will often try to avoid opposition. They convince themselves and their fellow fellow churchgoers that our message should be one the world likes. And so we end up with sin-friendly preaching. I jotted down some common phrases that I've heard used in modern evangelicalism. The Lord has a great plan for your life. God really, really loves you. Jesus wants to be your friend. God is pleading with you to accept him. Jesus Christ just wants you to let him into your heart. Now all these phrases and all like them have this one thing in common. They have no foundation in scripture. You can survey the entire book of Acts with all those examples of apostolic preaching and you will search in vain for any of the phrases or approaches used by the modern evangelical church. Or rather by much of it. The picture of the apostles preaching we get from the examples given in Acts was very different They weren't frightened of telling people they'd sinned against God. They even accused people of specific sins, such as the murder of Jesus by the Jews. Their preaching was bold. They didn't shrink back from disputes with people. And their preaching was, of course, thoroughly Christ-centred. The only way someone can enjoy the knowledge of sins forgiven is to have first experienced the sadness of sins unforgiven. People must be left in no doubt. They're in trouble with God. When we had our children, it soon dawned on me they were born into this world, children of wrath like everyone else. Regardless of whether they were God's elect or not, In their initial state, they deserved God's condemnation. Unless God was to change this state, they'd remain his enemies. This goes for your children too. God is coming for them. 
If they don't repent, God will come after them with his sword drawn and inflict vengeance. And he won't show them a scrap of mercy. They won't receive a lightest sentence because they had Christian parents. It's worse than that. The fact they had Christian parents and had such a privilege to hear the gospel over and over again means they'll be held more accountable. This is why I beg God day after day to have mercy on my children. I don't lay it on thick to them about eternal hell and try and, you know, create some false profession in them. But I do want them and my relatives and my friends and the rest of the world to understand that they must fear God. They must fear God. The Hebrew Christians were reminded that it's a fearful thing. Fearful to fall into the hands of the living God. Listen to James chapter 4, verses 8 to 10. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners. Purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and let your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. When I share the gospel with unbelieving friends and relatives, I want more than anything for them to feel awful, to feel sorrow over sin, to cry. When they realise they've spent their lives mocking the God of heaven. And may God help me to never descend into preaching a false gospel geared towards making sinners feel like God's their best friend. No, no. Here's my final point. The disciples were to wash their hands of all who rejected the gospel. Jesus' instruction to the disciples may sound odd to us. If any refuse to hear them, he said, let them shake the dust from off their feet. The disciples were still Jews, culturally speaking, even if they were no longer Jews in a religious sense. And they'd have been familiar with this curious practice. Many Jews on return from Gentile countries would remove the dust from their feet before entering their homeland. The Gentile nations were considered unclean and they'd have no trace of this pollution in their own land. It was symbolic. It's rather like Pilate symbolically washing his hands before handing Jesus over for crucifixion. It was a bit of theatre to make his statement clearer that he was not responsible for the killing of this innocent man. Things have changed. Jesus introduced the concept of a kingdom without borders. God's kingdom today is made up of neither unclean nor holy places there is no heathen land and no holy land. 
God's kingdom is made up of individuals from every corner of this globe. God no longer dwells in places, but in people. His holy church. I said the disciples would have enjoyed hospitality throughout their journey. But Jesus is here warning them they must also be prepared to be shunned. Some people will find the beautiful gospel message to be nothing but hate speech. The second century Roman historian Tacitus said Christians were haters of the human race. And that same irrational attitude persists even today. Jesus mentions Sodom and Gomorrah here. Curiously, he insists the inhabitants of those sinful cities won't suffer at the judgment as much as the people who rejected the disciples' message. I say it's curious because Sodom was notorious for its depravity. There was within it a, and the other cities around, a devilish mixture of pride, hatred and lust. And those cities were destroyed by God as an example for future generations. It was through this God would show his hatred for sin. The curiosity then is how some otherwise respectable people who just happen to not be interested in the gospel could be in worse trouble at the judgment than the perverts of Sodom. The person who doesn't know the scriptures would dismiss this as illogical. In the minds of men exist hierarchies of sin. You can ask anyone you meet to provide you with a list of sins. And if they went along with it, they'd give you a list and then they'd rank them according to how serious they thought they were. But you won't meet a single individual who even has a decent list, let alone place them in the right order. Now, any sin will bring judgment your way. If you were to somehow live your entire life sinlessly, yet in a, an unguarded moment commit just one sin, you'd face eternal judgment. So when people, when Christians say sin is sin, you can partly agree with them. You will perhaps agree that in one sense all sin is the same, but remind them that in another sense some sins are more serious than others. And contrary to what the world thinks, unbelief is the worst. Because to commit some violent act against another human being is truly reprehensible, but this is a crime against a mere human, likely a fellow sinner. The rejection of the gospel is an attack on God. It's a rejection of a message from God himself. It's an insult to his children who share the message. And worst of all, it's a slight on God's only son who gave his life for sinners. 
The man or woman who rejects the gospel acts despite the evidence for God in his creation and despite their consciences telling them they're not right with God. So they're guilty. And their crime is one that God will surely take personally. It's contrary to human reason as it is. Rejection of God is more serious than any of those sins that natural man considers the most heinous. This wasn't the only occasion when Jesus said rejection of the gospel was the worst crime. Matthew 11, if you want to read it, it starts at verse 20. Matthew 11, verse 20. Then began he to upbraid the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done, because they repented not. Woe unto thee, Chorazin! Woe unto thee, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Zidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Zidon at the day of judgment than for you. And thou, Capernaum, which art exalted unto heaven, shall be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which have been done in thee had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee. So here's the paradox. People who hear the gospel have been granted a great privilege. But if they reject it, their fate will be worse than if they'd never heard it at all. Once you hear the gospel, you immediately become part of a special class of people. From among this class, the multitude who've heard the gospel throughout history, will emerge two radically different groups. One group will obey the gospel. They will have their sins forgiven and get to live forever in a state of happiness. The other group won't obey the gospel. They won't have their sins forgiven and they get to exist forever in a state of misery. What this means for us is those countries today which have been most privileged with the outpouring of the word of God are at risk of facing a harsher judgment than all the most barbarous heathen nations. It's unbelievable, isn't it? I was saying to you only the other week, we should be thankful for what we as Christians have in this country of ours. I mentioned all the preaching and evangelism, and Bibles and books and so on. But rejection of this greater light means greater guilt. Jesus elsewhere says in John 15, verse 22, If I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin. But now they have no cloak for their sin. He that hateth me, hateth my father also. If I had not done among them the works which none other man did, they had not had sin. But now they have both seen and hated, both me and my father. 
Well, an unthinking Christian might reason that if most are to reject the gospel, it would be better for them not to hear the gospel from us in the first place. They'd be right in one sense. If the world didn't hear the gospel, their guilt would be less at the judgment. But the world will run according to God's good and wise purpose and not our childlike logic. And we who have been saved from our sin are thoroughly glad we heard the gospel. We rejoice that not all held back from declaring the good news of God's rescue plan that is in Christ Jesus. We'll be forever thankful to God. He raised up men to bring the gospel of righteousness to us. That he equipped them and sent them and moved them by his spirit to preach repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to God for his so great salvation. Amen.